Hello, everybody. Welcome back to You Can't Win. This is Tom here, and I'm joined by Don as usual. Uh, apologies for the slightly delayed episode here. Uh, we we just ran into some issues, and then we were kind of both in grief uh, due to the loss of the queen. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, I've had ongoing health problems, which I won't get into, but uh, uh, it has given me a lot of time to watch some uh, YouTubes and stuff. So we'll talk a little bit about that for a bit and then get into some book stuff with Tom. And uh, then we'll, uh, yeah, we'll get to you again soon, I think. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so what have you been watching? So I've been watching YouTubes about bikes because uh, I'm going to get a bike uh, sometime over the next few weeks. And uh, um, anyways, I'm, I'm, it's good. It's always good to have like a hobby that you're getting into once in a while <laughs> or like whatever. And uh, yeah, yeah. so I found this YouTube channel called uh, Shifter, which is just some guy. Uh, who I think lives in Calgary now. I'm not sure where he lives, but like uh, um, he uh, is basically like a commuter biker guy. And the thing I like about it, it's sort of like Learn Linux TV where it, it the, the whole selling feature to me is that the guy is chill and like reasonable and uh, <laughs> is not like trying to, he does have like a little bit of promotion stuff here and there, but most of the time he's just kind of telling you what he thinks about different things and stuff. Uh, you know, like it's not like... Uh, like most bike channels are like really, really high, like the big ones, whatever, are like high energy, kind of like quick cuts kind of stuff. Uh, a lot yeah. like, like all the magazines and stuff, most of them sure. are like that. So it's good to learn about this kind of stuff. I don't know. I, I don't know. Do you actually have a bike or no? I, I Not right now, no. Okay, okay. And uh, did you have one when you were a kid or? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah, I had one like at various points. I can't really remember the circumstances, but yeah, I've I've owned bikes on and off. Yeah, I had like a yellow BMX that I used to love when I was like a little kid, and I would just tool around the neighborhood and stuff all the time and get like you know. Anyways, uh, so I haven't had one since then, really. I don't think, uh, except for I guess now I just remembered this, but I did have one in China. Um, oh, that's and, cool. Uh, yeah, did you buy it there? Yeah, I mean. So in China, there's just like endless bikes, especially at that point, I think kind of thing. So mm -hmm. like, you don't really have to, I think maybe it was technically rented or maybe I only used it once or it was maybe one of the, even one of those things where you just kind of drop it off. You don't like think, overthink it kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. But they had like a, divvy bikes way back yeah. then. Um, no, no, it wasn't like, yeah, it wasn't actually like, a, I don't know. It, I, I don't remember it being like a expense in my mind. Kind of thing. It was just something that we did. And, sure. uh. Um, and it was really nice because the the campus was so big and stuff like that. So, um, and anyways, uh, so uh, since then I haven't really, you know, done any of this stuff. So I'm a bit nervous about like getting one and it being like, I don't, I want to get like show up to the store prepared basically kind of thing, number one. And mm -hmm. then number two, like I want to actually... I was talking to Agile Tab a little bit about this kind of stuff back and forth because I'm like, my impulse would be to just go and get one and not like actually talk to staff and all that kind of stuff, you know, but like, that's not the way you should do it kind of thing, you know, you're supposed to get kind of measured and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, and uh, it's, it's a bit different here because I am sort of in a rural area and stuff. So I'd have to kind of like get my mom to drive me to the store and then it's a bit of a hassle compared to just being in an urban environment where like the stores are all over the place and they're like sort of like more indie kind of thing, you know, a lot of these yeah. ones are like more like uh, either chain ones or like it's ambiguous if they even have bikes there kind of thing, you know what I mean? Like it's kind of, it's either like, uh, so anyways, so I'm kind of like random sporting goods kind of stuff like that. Or like yeah. there is like a small, like there are sports stores that like sell bikes and you don't. I don't know if I like, I just walk in if they're gonna, you know, like I have to kind yeah. of bounce around a bit. So I mean, those kind to, of like, places yeah. probably have kids bikes more than adult bikes. I would sure. guess, but I don't know. I really don't know. Um, but the main thing is that like, I, I just see like a rack of bikes and they're just all bikes to me kind of thing uh, up until a few days ago kind of thing. Like they're just, mm -hmm. I don't know like what the difference between a mountain bike and a road bike really is other than like a few things kind of like, I know what they're for or whatever, but I don't really know all the details and stuff so i was watching this channel shifter it's called and then i was watching a bunch of uh, other sort of youtubes trying to like piece together 
like knowledge about like what the different handlebars are like and stuff like that and what like the goals and it's kind of funny because more and more that i i read it and stuff uh, or like uh, learn about it um there are a lot of like emphases kind of thing you know like there are a lot of things but at the same time whenever they do ratings and stuff a lot of the time it just kind of comes out even like like there are differences <laughs> but a lot of the time like it's kind of like well you just you either get a you know like it's not it's not that huge a difference either way kind of thing like even with the this guy did like a rating of his commute with like an e-bike and stuff like that and the e-bike just him pedaling normally and all that kind of stuff was about 20% 30% faster or something like that but that's not really i mean it's it's easier because you're not pedaling as hard i guess and stuff like that but that's not really a huge difference do i mean really like yeah. an e-bike over like there if you're like a delivery person or something like that that might be a big deal but like for someone like me who wants to just get out a bit more and maybe get into town a bit and stuff so that's sort of like the second part that's been interesting is that like because we live in a rural area and it's about a 15 minute drive or so 10 minute 15 minute to uh sort of like the core walmart and all that kind of stuff right um, I thought like that was just impossible to bike kind of in my mind kind of thing. I thought like it was so far away by car kind of thing that like it would just not be viable kind of stuff. But I don't think that's true. I think that like if you look at the like math on stuff online, it it's it sort of because it's like, you know, number one, the driving is not that fast either. Right. Because you're just taking side streets and all that kind of stuff, whatever. It's not like it's not like. It's not like it measures a straightaway highway or something like that kind of thing, like the, all the way and stuff like that. So so I feel like it's plausible that if I get into a bit more shape and stuff and, like, I've been biking for a little bit, I could, like, do stuff like Google says it's only about a 15-minute bike ride to the corner store or something like that kind of thing. There's a, there's a store within, like, six kilometers of us or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, it's, like, it's not crazy that I could tool around a bit in the neighborhood stuff like with sure. it. so so yeah. that's been kind of exciting too in some ways because i'm like oh i could like i could actually like not full-on commute but like i could you know i could go into town into the like, actual neighboring town to get groceries once in a while or something like that kind of thing you know like if i needed to and uh that would be a big change for me so that would be good so and i'm also excited about like the idea of like getting a bit more into shape with it and stuff you know yeah so yeah, I think that'd be fun. So I don't know. See, the prices are very confusing to me. That's the main thing, really. And it's not really like I don't really care what it costs because I'm also planning on within the next few years, if I can get it together and stuff, buying a used car or something like that. And that is obviously a much more expensive. So it's like if I got like a cheap vehicle that, like that actually can maybe take me into town. That's not necessarily a terrible thing if I spend a fair amount as long as I use it and it doesn't get stolen and stuff like that, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but I also just, I always like, I have like a fear being ripped off. I don't want to like just show up and like not know my stuff and then being like, Oh no, you need to get this like $5,000 bike. That's like made of solid gold or something like that. So, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I mean, tabs has been loving her, her bike and just riding that around. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I hope I hope you end up getting a nice bike that works for you and that you enjoy it as much as she has. Yeah, it's been nice uh, talking to her a bit about it, just kind of getting some tips and stuff. And yeah, I mean, she does. did the same thing that you're talking about, like doing a bunch of research and figuring all that out. So yeah, yeah she's a good person to talk to for that. Sure. And uh, you know, when you mentioned e-bikes, it just reminded me. There's this uh, YouTube channel I've been watching a little bit of uh, this guy that's. He's French and he is taking his e-bike on like a world tour. So yep. he's biking from Europe uh, and he's gone through like, um, I, I haven't watched the first leg of his trip. I kind of just jumped in in the middle and he's already in the Middle East. So I think he, he went through um, like the Southern Euro European thing through Turkey and now he's in like, he was in Jordan and now he's in Egypt and I think he's going to go through Africa now. So, mm-hmm. So cool. it's pretty cool. Yeah, like he just charges up the bike and he uh, camps out just in the middle of nowhere, just wherever he finds a, a spot on the side of the road, basically. He has like a little, uh, like, 
not even a tent, just like a sleep. Well, I guess he does have a tent, actually. He just doesn't use it all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he's got a sleeping bag, and he buys food here and there. And Yeah, seems cool. Cool. I think he saved up some money for like a year off or whatever to do it. So Sure. Yeah, there's there. this area is actually really nice for bikes in terms of like, it's still built up enough that there's like highways and stuff like a, you know, like a, a small highway and stuff. And, and there's also like, uh, like provincial parks quite close to us, like within biking distance for sure. Um, and nice. uh, there's also, theoretically, this is also a trail uh, where like we see bikes a fair amount of the time um, in this area. And uh, you like, I live about, uh, you know, 15 minute drive from the closest to town, but I'm also like on like a main kind of drag between Toronto and Kingston and then like Montreal and stuff like that. Like it's, it's people, most people that are driving from those destinations and stuff go through our area kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, so theoretically, if I become, you know, a bike head or whatever kind of thing, I could get into that kind of stuff of like the more long distance kind of stuff of like trying to, you know, like, uh, I could visit friends or something like that kind of thing or whatever kind of thing, you know? So we'll see. I mean, I could stop at like family's houses and stuff like right close to us and stuff. So uh, yeah. we'll see. Picturing you pulling up with like <laughs> squealing to a break, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> ringing the little bell. <laughs> ching, yeah. Ching. <laughs> yeah it's, it's just exciting as a hobby. Cause it's like, I I can see how it scales now kind of thing in a way that like I didn't understand Mm. um, where I could like get into it a bit and stuff. So I don't really know about like theft and stuff like in Toronto. I know it's probably like a huge problem and stuff like people complain about bikes getting stolen a lot and stuff like that. Mm. Um, I don't know in my small town because I feel like it's uh, smart, uh, like harder to uh like get away with in the sense that like there's like people around a bit but like it would be very quite obvious if like someone came up and stole the bike you know what i mean it's a bit more obvious i think in like yeah. the rural area because it's like people notice that kind of stuff yeah um, but uh like say theoretically i could eventually ride to uh the movie theater or something like that and then just leave it there for you know locked up for like an hour or two kind of thing i don't know if that's like enough you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if it's, like, right at the mall. Is that, like, too exposed or anything like that? I don't know. But, like, it is good enough to know that, like, you know, I don't know. Like, uh, otherwise, like, that seems like a thing. I guess I guess at the end of the day, too, I don't really, like, the expense of, like, a few hundred dollars here and there uh, in terms of, like, even if it did get stolen, it wouldn't be there in the world kind of thing, you know? Yeah, um, I mean, it's a pain in the ass yeah. when your transportation has just disappeared, but sure uh, yeah it's, but it's not it's not necessarily especially in my situation it's not like it's not gonna you know it's better than uh, for for at least being able to get into town like for the convenience store and stuff like that uh it's it's that's at least better than and there are like little restaurants right near there and stuff there's like a handful of them and stuff just local ones so that is better for me in a lot of ways in terms of freedom of movement and stuff like that um than just you know having to have your mom drive you everywhere and stuff right so yeah yeah yeah, for sure yeah and it's also more plausible in my mind to do it like within the next few months than it is like to just get a car quickly kind of thing so yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i think that sounds great yep so i think that'll be fun um yeah so anyways you want to get into your book yeah so um yeah, so this book that I, I just finished this uh, like maybe a week ago or so, uh, The Books of Jacob by Olga Tokarczuk. I've been like really slowly reading this for months. I don't really, I think I started maybe in April or something like that. And, uh, you know, I've kind of been going at varying speeds with it. But I finally finished it. I think I've talked about it a little bit, but I'll just kind of give like a basic summary of the idea of it, the concept of it, and then I'll kind of go through my thoughts on it. So. Sure. Primarily, it's about a man named Jacob Frank, who was a uh, purported messiah in the 1750s to like 1790s, primarily in Poland. And uh, it's also about the community around him. 
Uh, he's, he's actually not like a protagonist exactly. I mean, he's like a major, you know, character in the book, but it's not like we see it from his perspective. It's, it's much more like there's a very broad cast of characters and we kind of see things from all their perspectives in a sense. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of a two primary characters that I think are pretty interesting. Uh, one is his like scribe who's like one of the early followers or disciples who um, takes it upon himself to like write the biography of the, of this prophet mm-hmm. um, kind of in secret. Cause uh, Frank doesn't actually want him to be doing it. So a lot of the book is from those writings that this guy Naman has written down. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's this other character, Benedict. I'm really bad with the pronunciations with Polish. I, I you know, forgive me, but Benedict, Jimlowski. Uh, he is a priest who uh, wants to compile like all the knowledge of the country or the world. I forget which one it is. But basically he wants to compile all this knowledge into like a book, create like this big encyclopedic book. And that has led him to begin to interact with the Jewish communities in, in Poland around him because they have books that have information that he can't get elsewhere. He's sort of persuaded to do this. So he's like started to trade books with uh, with some of the rabbis and stuff like that. I'm sorry. I, I'm going to interrupt you for a second for a weird reason. But like, uh, okay. So uh, you said his name is Kimlowski or like, how do you, do you spell it? Okay. So it's C-H-M-I-E-L-O-W-S-K-I. So I think it's Kimlowski. Uh, I, I can't do it out loud. That's funny. But like a Kimielowski Kimiel, or something, which okay. is funny because uh, that's one of my uh, family names. Not, not oh, Kimielowski, no but like Kimiel. Uh I think that is uh, one of our, uh, oh, wow. one of my great grandparents or something like that. Kimiel. And it means, I think it means like Miller. So huh. Milowski would probably mean Miller's son or something like that. So. Interesting. Okay. So, well, yeah. uh, one thing I should note, I guess, is that this is, um, it's historical, a lot of it. Yeah. Obviously, you know, it's a novelization, so it's like a historical fiction. But the, uh, I mean, that's one of the strong points of the book, I think, is the depth of research that's just obvious from reading it. There's so much detail about all kinds of things. I mean, there's um, like the clothing that people are wearing, the food they're eating, the the way they kind of go about their day, like the... Uh, you know, like the the way the marketplace works and the way the communities interact with each other and mm-hmm. uh, the way they relate to the governments of various sorts and stuff like that. Yeah. It's really interesting. And yeah. um, at times there's little images in the book that uh, so you'll be reading and, it'll you know, you, you kind of forget that you're reading a historical thing and you're just kind of following along and they're talking about something. And all of a sudden there's a photograph of the thing they're talking about. And you're like, oh, yeah, this is this is real on some level, you know, like the or at least this thing sure. they're talking about is real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a very cool part of the book that I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so. um so that's really cool. Uh, I think she also won the Nobel Prize recently for literature. And I oh, think really? this was the thing that they really focused on was this book. I haven't read her other books. Some people say that those are actually better. Mm-hmm. They're shorter novels. Uh, this is a huge novel. This is like 950 pages or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, which was a like, a, I guess, a, a you know, sort of unusual for her. Um, but I thought she did very, very well with it. Um yeah, so let me just explain a little bit more about Jacob Frank, then I'll give an overview of my thoughts, uh, the positives and negatives, and then I'll kind of dive into some passages that I thought were interesting. So Frank's career as a prophet ra- roughly ran between 1750 to like 1790s, and uh, he was, a as, as portrayed in the book, that's primarily what I'm going to be basing this off of, is he was just kind of like this guy, uh, he was a charismatic um person who uh he was jewish living in the european part of what's like now turkey like so this you know it was the ottoman empire at the time so kind of in that like bulgaria uh Idirne sort of area it's a little bit vague um and he is able to just like rouse the crowds in the market because he's able to like speak in the language that they understand you know he's not using kind of archaic stuff that that maybe the rabbis are using and he's not using like latin or like uh, kind of obscure theological vocabularies or anything like that he can explain these things 
uh, he can he kind of can like relate the meaning of the world to people in this big cosmic sense in a language that they understand and mm-hmm. he's also um quick to like have fun so he's sort of like the life of the party too so like he will kind of like whip everyone up into this frenzy and they'll all start dancing and singing and uh sometimes it like deteriorates into just a flat out orgy uh oh, yeah. he'll he'll get like the guards involved so there will be like these turkish guards and these jews and various you know jews from various um cliques i guess you could say or, or like different communities different sure. sects and he'll get them all together because he's just like making it so fun and appealing um you know and all these common people they, they're not so strict about these like religious adherence you know like the, the, sure they're just people you know so they kind of all get um get on board with this but prim- primarily his kind of religious vocation is directed to jews and particularly to jews who have an issue of some sort with the rabbis and, or with the orthodoxy or, for, or whatever so it's sort of like non-traditional jews are kind of his his people mm-hmm. um so he's able to gather these acolytes and um, a number of them are pretty intelligent people. So like Naman, who uh, I talked about earlier, you know, he's intelligent and perceptive and able to kind of uh, understand Frank, not as, you know, not just as like some perfect being or anything, but they understand him as a man, you know, because he sort of is a, he's like them, yeah. but he's like them with a little bit more confidence, a little bit more courage and maybe a little bit of, of help from god or something like that you know Mm -hmm. so um yeah so he kind of like he gains a reputation pretty quickly good and bad you know a lot of people don't like him people who have various interests in the way things are and then there's a lot of people who are interested in what he's doing because they aren't served by the like prevailing authorities you know so it's that kind of standard story yeah um anyway so yeah the things that i thought were very good about the book was the level of research and the way that it's presented um the just the the way that the book read was very good the the prose itself it moves quickly enough that you don't feel bogged down too much just in the style mm-hmm. which is i think important for big books it's also like sectioned out in really nice bite-sized little chunks so like there's like 30 chapters or so but each chapter is broken down basically into like a dozen to maybe 20 parts or something so like each little chunk you can read it's just like maybe sometimes there's only a few pages but they never go super long like you know 10 20 pages max so you can like really uh parcel out your reading you don't have to like sit and get like sucked into some big chapter and get lost like it's it's very easy to follow and and nice to pick up and put down as you like Mm mm-hmm and at the same time, like there's this huge scale to the book. They travel across this whole part of Europe. You know, they're on the European side of the Ottoman Empire. Then they go to Poland then they go to Austria and various places in between. And uh, there's a huge cast of characters, but it never gets confusing about what's going on or who's who. Um, I think part of that is that none of the characters are especially deep so much. Like there's a few major characters that you get a sense of their personality and um, this can be good and bad. I think there were some people that were interesting enough that I wanted to know more about them and we just sure. don't get that. Mm-hmm. And But on the other hand, it's easy to keep track of what's going on because you're like, okay, this guy is the cranky guy who doesn't like Frank. Okay, this is the person who secretly wants to help Frank and that's, you know, that's about the sum of their role in the book. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a mixed thing. Um, now, there are some things that i didn't like about the book and this is like my major criticism of it i think it starts pretty strong it really brings you into the world but it sort of starts to turn into a slog and you kind of have to like plod along so i would say like the first third of the book is pretty good as as an introduction the second third is fairly weak because there wasn't as much happening as there was like just pages of of stuff so it kind of felt like let's get moving already you know yeah uh, but, but then in the third the final third it really picks up and i thought that it ends pretty strongly and uh kind of makes up for that weaker weaker uh second third of the book so um it, you know if you if you're the kind of person that like enjoys reading these big sort of books and stuff uh, i don't think it would be too big an issue but if you're not used to that then this is going to feel uh like sort of a trial but i think it's worth it in the end regardless Mm -hmm. um there's also something that 
this I felt this way while I was reading it and immediately afterwards, but I feel less so as time goes on and as I've kind of like looked back through the book to prepare for this. Um, and that's the, I felt that it was like strangely somehow unambitious about certain things, which is like a weird thing to say, given what I've just kind of lauded about the book. Sure. But it sort of sets up this huge thing. Like there's this massive structure of the historical detail and the setting and all these characters and this big sort of, um, thing about theology and, and the significance of of life even, you know, like there's, there's very big, like cosmic themes at play, but it doesn't feel like it's really reaching very far with these things. So it, it's, it's a strange mix of huge, like cosmic scale. Yeah. And then of somehow like not ambitious enough with what it's set up for itself. Um, I don't think it is like falls completely flat or anything but it it somehow like didn't reach far enough for me on on certain levels but like i said um as i've gone back and like looked at certain passages i feel like you know what i think this actually did did kind of like reach enough that i i and for whatever reason i just didn't uh pick up on that like on the first go or something so mm -hmm. okay so i uh i pulled a bunch of different passages that i wanted to read um, they kind of highlight different things about the book that I thought were interesting, especially to listeners of this podcast. So the uh, first bit that I wanted to read is actually like the very opening of the book. Mm -hmm. And that's because it presents the primary narrator. So there was the other character, Naman the scribe, and we get his parts and they're always labeled scraps and then we get it from like his first person perspective but the majority of the book is actually narrated in third person from the perspective of this character called yente and yente is like the um, grandmother um, yeah. or great-grandmother and she dies at the beginning of the book so i will read this real quick and then i'll explain what what this is about so sure. it starts once swallowed, the piece of paper lodges in her esophagus near her heart, saliva soaked. The specially prepared black ink dissolves slowly now, the letters losing their shapes. Within the human body, the word splits in two, substance and essence. When the former goes, the latter, formlessly abiding, may be absorbed into the body's tissues, since essences always seek carriers in matter, even if this is to be the cause of many misfortunes. Yente wakes up. But she was just almost dead. She feels this distinctly now, like a pain, like the river's current a tremor, a clamor, a rush. With a delicate vibration, her heart resumes its weak but regular beating, capable. Warmth is restored to her bony, withered chest. Yente blinks and just barely lifts her eyelids again. She sees the agonized face of Elisha Shore, who leans in over her. She tries to smile, but that much power over her face she can't quite summon. Alicia Shore's brow is furrowed, his gaze brimming with resentment. His lips move, but no sound reaches Yente. Old Shore's big hands appear from somewhere, reaching for her neck, then move behind her threadbare blanket. Clumsily, he rolls her body onto the side so he can check the bedding. Yente can't feel his exertions, no. She senses only warmth and the presence of a sweaty, bearded man. Then suddenly, as though from some unexpected impact, Yente sees everything from above, herself, the balding top of Old Shore's head. In his struggle with her body, he has lost his cap. And this is how it is now, how it will be. Yente sees all. So essentially, this character Yente has died for everybody in the world, but her soul has left her body, and she can see everything. She's like this kind of floating presence in the world, and uh, she's not limited by time and space or anything like that so she's sort of like this omnipresent narrator who is also a character so there's sort of an interesting thing going on there and then uh anyway yeah there's there's kind of fun stuff that happens with that because this is sort of like where you get this like folk um almost like magical sort of stuff that works sure. its way into it mm -hmm. that is a part of the you know the jacob frank cosmology and everything Mm -hmm. um and i i thought i read that whole bit because i thought you could kind of get a sense of the language and the style and uh this is a little bit more flowery than a lot of the book is um 
Yeah, so then I also I got some stuff here about people interacting with Jacob Frank. So you get a lot of this. You get um, you know, scenes of people coming to him asking him for things or how they behave at his like uh, little circles and lessons and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I forget who this character is even. I think it's just a minor character who appears just for this one moment or maybe a, just a few moments or something like that. Um, but it starts like this. She writes on a scrap of paper, If you are truly merciful, bring them back to life. She sprinkles it with sand and waits for the ink to dry. Then she rolls the paper up tight. She keeps this little roll in her hands as she enters the chapel. She has had all of her jewelry melted down and fashioned into a big heart, not knowing how else to express her pain. She has a hole in her chest, and she must be mindful of it. It hurts and oppresses her. And so she had cast a prosthesis out of gold, a crutch for the heart. Now she makes a votive offering of it in the monastery, and the monks hang it alongside the other hearts. She doesn't know why, but the side of the heart, joined with the other hearts, big and small, brings Drusbaka the greatest relief, greater than prayer and greater than gazing into the black, impenetrable face of the Madonna. There is so much pain on view here, Drusbaka's own pain, just a drop in the sea of tears that have been shed in this place. Every human tear enters a stream that flows into a little river, and then the river joins a bigger river, and so on, until in the end, in the great current of an enormous river, it washes into the sea and dissolves on the horizon. In these hearts hung up around the Madonna, Drusbaka sees mothers who have lost, or are losing, or will lose their children and grandchildren. And in some sense, life is this constant loss. Improving one's station, getting richer, is the greatest illusion. In reality, we are richest at the moment of our birth, after that, we begin to lose everything. That is what the Madonna represents. The initial whole, the divine unity of us, the world and God, is something that must be lost. What remains in its wake is just a flat picture, a dark patch of a face, an apparition, an illusion. The symbol of life is, after all, the cross, suffering, nothing more. This is how she explains it to herself. When the, the next morning... Still before dawn, she returns to the church. Her gaze is drawn by the tall, well-built man in a Turkish outfit, dark, with a caftan buttoned up to his neck, his head bare. He has a thick black mustache and long hair flecked with gray. At first he prays feverishly, kneeling. His lips move soundlessly, and his lowered eyelids with their long lashes tremble. Then he lies down with his arms outspread on the cold floor in the very center of the church, right in front of the barrier that protects the holy picture. Drusbaka tries to find some scratches in the wall, some chinks between the marble slabs with which the walls are lined, where she might be able to insert her roll of paper. For how would her missive make it to God if not through the stone lips of the temple? The marble is smooth, and its joints are mercilessly meticulous. In the end, she is able to press the scrap of paper into a shallow crack, but she knows it won't last long there. No doubt it will fall out soon, and the crowds of pilgrims will trample it. The same day, in the afternoon, she meets again that tall man with the pockmarked face. Now she knows who he is. She grabs hold of his sleeve, and he looks at her in surprise, his gaze soft and gentle. Are you the imprisoned Jewish prophet? she asks without preamble, looking up at him. She barely reaches to his chest. He understands, and he nods. His face doesn't change. It is gloomy and ugly. You've worked miracles. You've healed. That is what I have heard. Jacob does not so much as blink an eye. My daughter died, as did six of my grandchildren. Drusbaka spreads out her fingers before him and counts one, two, three, four, five, six. Have you heard of bringing the dead back to life? Some people seem to be able to do it. Prophets know the way. Have you ever managed to do it, even with just an old dog? Yeah, so that was, uh, I don't know. I thought that was a really, like, beautiful little Yeah, thing. for sure. I really like that. Yeah. Um. One thing I haven't mentioned, I suppose, is that uh, Frank switches religions throughout the uh, kind of throughout his career. So when he's in the Ottoman Empire, at some point he decides to convert to Islam. And then when they go to Poland, there's sort of like this funny like bidding war almost over his religion. He ends up becoming Catholic. Um, then he's like Jewish for a, a period of time. And it's kind of like on again, off again, because people don't really accept their conversion. You know, they kind of think of them like, okay, well you've converted. So you're, we're not going to 
outright like persecute you, but we don't accept you as one of us, you know? So they're sort of like in and out at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so this is just a little passage here that I got that kind of describes the way that the authorities tried to create these prohibitions and bans and, and stuff on them to contain, you know, this whole thing that's happening here. So it goes like this. The bans have little effect. They only work at the start, but then human nature with its long finger begins to poke a hole in them, first a little one, and then, when it encounters no resistance, a larger and larger one, until finally the hole is bigger than what isn't the hole. That's how it goes with any interdiction. Um, And then there's something here which I think is a pretty significant idea in the book. It's only mentioned a few times, but you can really feel its presence behind almost everything that's going on with Frank. Mm -hmm. And it's this idea of the messianic machine. Okay. So it goes like this. The messianic machine is like that mill standing over the river. The dark water turns the great wheels evenly without regard for the weather slowly and systematically. The person by the wheels seems to have no significance. His movements are random and chaotic. The person flails. The machine works. The motion of the wheels transfers power to the stone gears that grind the grain. Everything that falls into them will be crushed into dust. Getting out of captivity also requires tragic sacrifices. The Messiah must stoop as low as possible, down into those dispassionate mechanisms of the world where the sparks of holiness, scattered into the gloom, have been imprisoned, where darkness and humiliation are greatest. The Messiah will gather the sparks of holiness, which means that he will leave behind him an even greater darkness. God has sent him down from on high to be abased, into the abyss of the world, where powerful serpents will mercilessly mock him, asking, Where's that God of yours now? What happened to him? And why won't he give you a hand, you poor thing? The Messiah must remain deaf to those vicious taunts, step on the snakes, commit the worst acts, forget who he is, become a simpleton and a fool, enter into all enter into all the false religions, be baptized and don a turban. He must annul all prohibitions and eliminate all commandments. So this is sort of part of his theology is this idea that the Messiah has come and that's him. Yep. And so that means that the laws, the old laws of the, uh, they have been, kind of been maintained by the rabbis and all the other religions in the world. They have to be flipped on their head. So what's good is bad. What's, you know, what has been prohibited must now not only be allowed, but it actually is a duty to do it. Um, so this is sort of like a, a bit of a holdover from his predecessor. There was two prior uh, prophets who were kind of in a very similar vein. So Sabbatai Zevi was one of them, and I forget the other one. Um, So uh, there's a lot of stuff in the book about this kind of thinking and the way that people are trying to respond to a changing world. Remember, it's in like the 1750s. So this is like just at the advent of modernity, basically, you know. So a lot of this stuff is people trying to grapple with this changing world and the fact that they belong to these various traditions and cultures and like, what do we do with that? You know, it seems to not be working for us anymore, but what, what might work? What do we do? So a lot of this sort of like prefigures this kind of uh, like modern thinking, you know? Um, And I think she does a good job with it. It's a little bit cringy to me sometimes that might just be my own uh tastes or whatever but there is a a bit where it sometimes it just feels a little bit like i don't know like a lib utopian kind of a thing going on but it's really not too bad um so here's something about this law of freedom that i was i'm kind of uh talking about here he's uh telling a story about how moses when he left the uh the jews at the time they sort of lost their piety, right? They started to worship the calf and all that sort of stuff. Uh, So what Moses does is he comes back and he shatters the tablets that have the law on them into a thousand fragments because people are misusing them, basically. Uh, So then it goes like this. It says, In order that no one would know the true law of freedom, Samael, who's one of the, just one of the people in the community, carefully gathered the little pieces of the shattered Torah of Atzelut, and scattered them around the world among many different religions. When the Messiah comes, he will have to pass over into Samael's kingdom to collect the tab- 
the tablet's shards and present the new law in its final revelation. What was this lost law all about? asks Wajgele, uh, when she and Naman climb into bed. That's Naman's wife. Who could possibly know, since it has been dispersed, he answers warily. It was good. It respected people. But Wajgala is, stu is stubborn. Was it the opposite of what we have now? The opposite of thou shalt not commit adultery would be thou shalt commit it. And the opposite of thou shalt not kill would be kill. It's not that simple, says Naman. So, what, one thing that the book tries to show is that, yes, these people have this... this uh, concept about the law and the and transgressing you know the the limitations that have been set and all this sort of stuff but they're not doing it just purely out of like it's not the pleasure principle or something like they have sort of higher principles that they believe themselves to be um abiding by in doing this mm -hmm. so there's another aspect to this uh, where there's like the traditional Jewish community that follows like the Orthodox rabbis, like, you know, lowercase o Orthodox, right? Like just your standard, you know, Polish Jews, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's this community, which is everyone understands them to be heretics, including themselves. And just like everything else, they have an explanation for this. For You know, they they, they understand this to be part of the way it needs to be. Mm hmm. Uh, so this passage goes like this. It says, Is life itself not a stranger to this world? Are we not strangers, and is our God not a stranger? Is this not why we appear so different, so distant, so scary, and incomprehensible to, to those who really do belong to this world? But this world is equally bizarre and incomprehensible to any stranger to it, and its rules are incomprehensible, as are its customs. For the stranger comes from the farthest distance, from the outside. And he must endure the fate of the foreigner, alone and defenseless, completely misunderstood. We are foreigners, foreigners, Jews, Jews, and we will always be homesick. Since we do not know the roads of this world, we move through it defenseless, blind, knowing only that we are strangers to it. Uh, Mauluda said that as soon as we strangers, living amongst those others, get used to and learn to take pleasure in the charms of this world, we will forget where we came from and what sort of origins were ours. Then our misery will end, but at the price of forgetting our true nature. And this is the most painful moment of our fate, the fate of the stranger. That is why we must remind ourselves of our foreignness and care for this memory as we would our most treasured possession. Recognize the world as the place of our exile. Recognize its laws as foreign, as strange. Mm -hmm. And... Um, yeah, so then there's a, an interesting thing that's going on here that Frank is like not the only person pursuing this sort of mission to try to like put together all the, fra you know, the fragments of the world because sure. there's this feeling that things have happened and everything's broken apart and nothing fits together anymore. So there's, everyone's trying to put things together. So you have, um, Kamilowski, he's writing this book, which he calls the new Athens, right? And that's supposed to be like an encyclopedic compendium of all the knowledge that he can get his hands on. Mm -hmm. And he gets into a correspondence with a, a young woman I, who I believe is from like a noble family or something like that. I sort of forget her, her deal, but it's very funny. And that's one thing I haven't mentioned in this book. There, there's a lot of like really funny little parts and it's a lot of fun. Like I've been reading kind of the more heavy, Sure. Um, somber stuff. It's not that's it's not like that throughout. There's it's actually quite fun and like lighthearted for the most part. Mm -hmm. Um. So, for example, you know, he's a priest, so he's celibate, all that sort of thing. He's pretty nervous around this woman. You know, he gets he's obviously like taken with her, finds her attractive and wants to impress her. It's not like he's trying to be. Um, he's not trying to like have sex with her or anything, but he is trying to like impress her. So he's like talking about this book that he's writing and, Oh, you know, I think this would be really good for an intelligent reader like you, you know, trying to like, like flatter her and all this sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. She doesn't really buy it, but they do get into a correspondence together and their friendship kind of grows. So she writes a letter to him after he explains at length what he's trying to do, what his project is. And uh, so she says this as part of her letter. She says, I permitted myself to include as well a little volume you would not have encountered yet. 
If you were to place your Athens and my little handcrafts on, on a scale, of course they would be incomparable. That's the way it is, I suppose. The self-same thing comes out very differently in the hands of two different people. Those who are left and those who, will and those who leave will always draw different conclusions. Likewise, the person who possesses and the person possessed, the person who is sated and the one who is hungry, the wealthy daughter of a nobleman dreams of a little pug from Paris, while the poor daughter of a peasant dreams of a goose to have for meat and feathers. That is why I write, For my ordinary mind it will suffice, unable to count the sky stars anyhow, to add up the oaks and firs and pines precise, practice that arithmetic at least for now. Whereas your vision is quite different, you would like information to be an ocean from which we can all draw, and you think that an educated person, on reading every piece of it, will know the whole world without leaving his home, and that human knowledge is like a book, in the sense that it also has its covers, its bounds, which means it can be summarized and made available to all. It is a glorious goal that motivates you, and for that, as your reader, I am grateful. But I know what I'm talking about, too. And then she has another bit of her poetry. Every person is a little world. The firmament is where the head is. The mind's the sun. Its rays are words, and the planets are the senses. The world errs and takes with it mankind. Death pursues the day from east to west. Women keep the world in mind and on its feet to stand the test. You will say, imprecise, idle chatter, and no doubt you'll be right. Maybe the whole art of writing, my dear friend, is the perfection of imprecise forms. And, um, yeah, so I think I've kind of uh, summarized it pretty well here. There's one last bit I want to read, sure. which is, I think, it was just uh, really great. So at the end of the book, we, we kind of follow everyone through the, the whole of their life, basically. So in the 1790s, everyone's old, and it's almost like when the credits roll and you get the little like so-and-so went on to be, you know, the ambassador to sure. Jamaica or whatever, yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. that whole kind of thing. Yeah. So this, this starts to happen. We go through all the characters and we kind of like get a little conclusion to everyone's story. And, um, Jacob Frank dies and, uh, we get an, uh, a little chapter that's just called the skull. And mm -hmm. it goes like this. All the Offenbach, so Offenbach was the town they happened to be living in at the time, all the Offenbach neophytes were buried in the city cemetery, though some years later this cemetery began to interfere with plans to expand the town, and it was ultimately liquidated in 1866. The bones of those buried there were carefully collected and respectfully reburied elsewhere. Jacob Frank's skull was removed from his grave and, thoughtfully recorded as a skull belonging to a Jewish patriarch, it passed into the hands of, a, of the historian of the city of Offenbach. Many years later, under unknown circumstances, it made its way to Berlin, where it underwent detailed measurement and research and was labeled a prime example of Jewish racial inferiority. After the Second World War, it vanished without a trace. Either it was destroyed in the turmoil and chaos of war, crumbling to dust, or else it is still lying around somewhere in the underground storage facility of some museum. And then there's an image of the skull. Oh, yeah. Or of a skull. Yeah, sure. who knows? Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, so that that's uh that was my little presentation on this book. <laughs> no, no, I really liked it. Yeah, I I uh I don't know. I mean, it, it hits on a lot of our as you said themes like perennialism yeah. and stuff like that or like just religion in general but also like as sort of like a summation and stuff like that and like also like knowledge of uh I don't know maybe are both tendencies of either wanting to get through everything or uh, mm -hmm. or uh, also taking a moment to kind of step back and go, okay, well, that's not a process that can be completed and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, I, I, I did enjoy this book. I ended up giving this a four out of five on Goodreads. I think you could probably talk me into just bumping it up to a five. Um, I've sort of... You know, I mentioned this to you over WhatsApp that I've been reading so much this year. And one thing I've really noticed is some books I completely fall in love with while I'm reading it. And then once I'm done with it, I'm like, eh, you know what? That was a fun read, but it's not staying with me so much. I think I enjoyed it more while I was reading it than 
after the fact having read it, you know? Sure. And then other books, it's the opposite. While I'm reading it, I'm like, this isn't that good. I'm kind of like making myself continue it and finish it and all that. And then once I've read it, I appreciate it so much more in retrospect. Sure. And um, this is one of those latter books mm-hmm. um, where I am appreciating it more in retrospect than I was at the time of reading it. So, sure. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I would recommend cool. this if, you know, yeah. to anyone who's like you were saying, this covers a lot of the stuff uh, like uh, not just in terms of the subject matter, but like the themes of the stuff that we kind of tend to talk about, you know, and a lot. Of, I I like that it was able to present things that are contradictory, mm-hmm. but seem like at the same time, just true. Like you can't really say like, well, there's a contradiction. So one of them is wrong. Sure. It's really hard to like tease apart. Well, which one would be the wrong one then, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, and it sort of seems like it's probably the way we're looking at it or conceiving of it or something. Mm-hmm. I think this book is really about those kinds of things. And it's about people trying to do that in their own different ways. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. It, it, yeah. I, I would put this in the, uh, you can't win canon, I guess. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. It's another book where I, after you've talked about it, I have to like go download it immediately kind of thing. You know what I mean? But uh, <laughs> I don't know if I actually will get to it right away, but I'll try to. And uh, yeah. So I'm glad that you brought that up. Yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah. Um, I am interested in people. Uh, if you like us going into a, a single book in that much depth, I, a lot of times I kind of just do like a quick little review of a book. Like, yeah, I read this, I liked it. And then I read this one and I didn't like it as much. And I kind of leave it basically at that. Yeah. Um, I enjoy doing this. Uh, let me know if you guys did, if this was just like too much of like, maybe you're not that interested in this book and whatever, you don't care about me reading all this stuff. Let me know. Yeah. Um, I'm happy to kind of adjust my approach. I feel like if I'm interested, it's fine kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like, I think yes. that that's, that's, the, <laughs> yeah. that's the key. But, like, uh, yeah, it's hard to sort of gauge what other people uh, well, are into yeah, and stuff. So. Full disclosure, basically, we're just going to do what we want in the end. But sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I do like to hear how people are responding to this. Yeah. So Yeah, sure. Um, okay. Yeah, I think we're... Uh, I think we're going to wrap it up there. Uh, I'm starting to, it's starting to wear on me where I'm going to have to lay down in a minute. So, um, yeah, I think we'll end it there for now. Okay. Yeah, sounds good. All right. Well, uh, thanks for listening, guys. Thanks, guys.